Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining me now to uh, talk more about inflation and the outlook for the economy is Patrick Harker. He is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. And good morning to you, Pat. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, good morning, Mike. Inflation came in February, but that's not what the Fed expects going forward. The Philly Fed index that came out this month was the highest for prices paid since 1980. Uh, do you anticipate a really, really rapid rise in prices? Is that what people in your district are telling you? No, that's not what we're hearing across the board. We are seeing in certain pockets like manufacturing, uh, their supply, they're seeing price uh, price pressures. But what they're not doing is uh, planning on passing much of that along to their consumer, uh, to their end customer. So I think it's uh, the inflation story is complicated. As you said, we're going to see March, April drop off. Uh, They were low months, obviously, because we were shutting down the economy. So we're going to see a spike in inflation. But I think our forecast is for inflation to creep up to 2%. And our goal is to have it hit above 2% this year. Our forecast is around 2.1%. But we don't see it running out of control. Uh, What about the idea that um, on the spending side, uh, people are reluctant to go out? What are you hearing in in Philadelphia? We're getting more jabs in arms, and yet we see uh, personal spending decline in the month of February. It's been choppy, right, because the the virus has uh, been variable. We've had good months, bad months. We're seeing numbers rise now uh, in this region. And so... Until we get through this period, we're going to see a lot of volatility in all these measures. And that makes them hard to read. So for me as a policymaker, in that kind of situation, I want to hold steady, make sure we get through this period. Then we can start to normalize once we get through this. When you say get through this period, how long do you think it lasts? Well, again, if you talk to epidemiologists, not economists, uh, they'll say sometime in the fall, we should start to get herd immunity. I'm a little concerned, though. Some of the things we're hearing right now is vaccine hesitancy is real. We even hear this from our healthcare contacts, right? Healthcare workers themselves are reluctant to get the vaccine. So we need to make sure we get this vaccine into people's arms as quickly as possible. What are companies telling you about uh, finding employees? You're you're focused now on uh, getting unemployment down as low as you can. Some companies seem to be saying they can't find enough people. Other companies say uh, we don't need any more people yet. It varies, again, by sector. In manufacturing, skilled labor is a real shortage. And we're hearing this from all our contacts. Warehousing jobs. There is a warehouse in central Pennsylvania that the starting salary for people there is $23 an hour. So, again, it depends a lot on the sector of the economy. Hotel, hospitality, and leisure, some of those are having problems getting people back to work because those people have decided to switch careers to something that they think is more stable. I know that uh, a lot of people say the Fed doesn't have tools to boost employment, but you've got a new one at the Philadelphia Fed to help people switch careers. Yeah, so through our community development function at the Fed and at the Philly Fed, we've been doing work now for a long time 
on what are the skills necessary to help people get into the middle class where you don't need a four-year college degree. We call those jobs opportunity occupations, jobs that pay above median wages where you don't necessarily need a four-year college degree. So we've been doing that work for a while. We, we've looked at 33 metro areas along with our colleagues at Cleveland uh, and looked at these areas. We saw an average increase of about $15,000. That is people with some skills, with some upskilling could get a better job and improved a lot of for themselves and their families. We then now built this tool, and this tool is meant for job seekers, employers, community colleges and other training organizations, policymakers, to see what's available in their region. Let me give you two examples of what you can find. So let's say you're a receptionist in Philadelphia. Well, you have skills that you can upskill to a medical secretary and see an average, on average, an increase of 26% in your salary. Or say you're in Cleveland and you're a cashier. Well, with some training, you could be a customer service rep. And there, you could see an average increase in salary of 135%. It's not just white-collar jobs. There are blue-collar jobs. So what's nice about this tool is you can lay out a map of what skills you need to get to get the jobs that are growing or shrinking. You can also see whether those jobs are growing or shrinking in your region. Now, uh, I know if I ask you about uh, market interest rates, you'll say markets do what markets do. They go up or down. But here's what I'm here's what I'm interested in is uh, rates have gone up. Mortgage rates have gone up. Car loans have gone up because the market is pushing rates higher, not the Fed. Are people more sensitive to that when they have been so low? In other words, is it more of a risk that we see activity slow because the markets have pushed up rates some? Well, let's start with business investment. I've not heard anybody say they're not investing because of rates. Just don't hear it. Right? It's because the demand side or the uncertainty that they're facing. So we need to resolve this uncertainty so that people can make the right decisions. I'm not the consumer, maybe. But again, we're not talking about massive increases historically in rates. I mean, if you really step back, we're not we're talking about, what, 100 basis points, maybe. Uh, this is historically not really something that's really affected people's decision to buy a car, uh, maybe on the margin by the home or the size of the home they get. But again, this is a good sign in some ways that rates, say, the 10 years going up. We don't know exactly why, um, but one of the plausible reasons why is that real rates are going up. People are more optimistic about the economy. And we've been hovering at zero or negative neutral real rates for a while. So the fact that that's rising is a good sign because it shows optimism. Uh, A question I put to the chairman after the news conference that I didn't quite get an answer to, I'll I'll put to you. Uh, You mentioned real rates and you mentioned uh, the the long term. When do we get to that two and a half percent neutral rate uh, that is considered the, the long term rate for the Fed? In other words, if you get to 2023, through 2023, and we don't see inflation out of control, do we just leave rates at zero indefinitely? Yeah, we'll have to see when we get there. I'm not sure uh, that that would be my, and I can only speak for myself, uh, my policy prescription. I mean, if we're seeing very strong unemployment, back to where we were before the pandemic, right? Low inflation, great unemployment numbers. That's where we want to get back to. And so there, I mean, there are some risks of keeping rates too low too long as well. And it's really a matter of balancing off these risks. But it's very situational. I mean, you can't just make this decision right now. You really need to see the data and see how things are unfolding. 
Well, you talk about the risks of keeping rates too low for too long. A lot of people point to the stock market or Bitcoin and say, you know, the Fed is really inflating bubbles here. How much of a concern is that to you? It's something that I keep in mind all the time, that and the cost to savers, people say on fixed income, uh, there, there's a cost. So, again, this is a balancing act. We need to get the economy to recover. We need to get the economy to heal with minimal scarring. That's what was the whole goal of what we did at the Fed for the past year, is trying to preserve as much as we can of the infrastructure of the economy. So, you know, I, I think uh, once we get through this, we can start to then think about how we normalize. Well, we get to uh, maybe 2.1% inflation as uh, as you forecast, or a little bit higher as some of your colleagues forecast. The market's right. going to start pushing up rates. And the question is, uh, is this a showdown between the markets and the Fed? And will the Fed blink? You've got a new uh, framework to work in uh, that you never have before. And the markets are going to want to test it, I'm sure. Uh, can you look through rate increases or is there is a level at which you get concerned? I mean, there's obviously a level which you get concerned to mean some exorbitant level. But if they're within the realm of reason, uh, I I am of the camp where we stick with our framework and we let inflation run above 2% for a while, not running out of control past 2%, but above 2% for a while. That is what we've committed to with our framework, and I am committed to that as well. Well, everybody's going to be looking to wage inflation to tell the story of whether or not yeah. we're seeing inflation rise too quickly. In the last Beige book, the Philadelphia sector said that uh, wages are rising because of demand for labor. The $15 minimum wage, they quoted one uh, Philadelphia uh, CEO is saying, is already here. Are you seeing a rise in wage pressures yet? Yeah, again, if you look at that warehouse in central Pennsylvania paying $23 an hour, they're getting their workers from somewhere. And those firms, in turn, respond by trying to raise wages to retain or attract new workers. So, yeah, we're starting to see that. But, again, it's not across the board. It's in certain sectors right now. Not a wage price spiral. I don't see it right now. I mean, it could happen, but we're not, we're not seeing it running out of control now. Patrick Harker, thank you very much for joining us this morning. He's the president of the Philadelphia Fed and a reasonably optimistic outlook there. Oops. Mike, you see that in the commentary around long-term rates, reflecting the optimism, sticking to script. And I think what you've got to do, and I know you're going to do a great job of it over the next couple of months, is when we start to see the data, see who is committed to the new framework of the Fed and maybe who isn't. Troy joins us now. Troy Gajewski, Skybridge Capital, co-CIO and senior portfolio manager. It's transitory, and then you see the data. You get slapped around with it, Troy, and you think, oh, is it, is it transitory? How do you think people will respond when we actually see the numbers over the next several months? Yeah, so I think the, the debate, whether it's transitory or more permanent, will continue to lead to elevated volatility, not only in fixed income markets, but also in equity markets. Because, you know, what we've seen this year so far is certainly the, the risks of the recovery another stimulus package that could have potentially not been signed by the Trump administration check, right? A vaccine rollout that started somewhat botched has accelerated dramatically checked. We've now gotten almost 9% of GDP uh, in another fiscal stimulus check. But the downside of course is higher interest rates, higher inflation. And that's really taken some of the steam and froth out of markets, which we view as a healthy process where we certainly become more concerned is if we start seeing those higher numbers stick, and that causes the Fed to prematurely withdraw 
aggressive balance sheet expansion and money supply growth. Because without, you know, money supply growth sustainably above nominal GDP, it's really hard to justify the valuations that equities are at right now, you know, somewhere around 21 and a half, 21.7 times 2021 earnings. Let's get to the money question then. What's the game plan for Q2? For, for the Fed in particular? For you, sir. Oh, yeah. No. For, so for us, yeah, no, we're, uh, we're pretty pumped about this year. You know, we're fortunately off to a really good start. And this is really one of these years where the, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So, you know, some of the high-performing, high-flying tech and growth stories last year have really turned into duds. And portfolios like ours that are more focused on value or cyclical exposures like structured credit or distressed credit, which are, by definition, turnaround cyclical stories have done exceptionally well. Um, you know, convertible bond arbitrage continues to be a strategy that's very attractive because of higher degrees of realized volatility. Um, on top of that, you have multi-strategy managers like Dan Loeb that are adding material value uh, as activists, not only in, in Disney, but also in Pell. And then lastly, we were very fortunate in taking a meaningful Bitcoin position uh, towards the beginning of December. And, and we think that is the purest macro expression for so many things that are going on right now, so many phenomena. One, massive money supply growth, 28% more M2 than we had pre-pandemic, two budget deficits as far as the eye can see. Three, you have the natural dynamics of the halving cycle where when you artificially reduce new supply, cut it in half, you tend to have a very strong bull market. And then lastly, you know, what's happening in crypto now, as you're aware, because you guys cover it so uh, uh, accurately, is you're going through an adoption story, very similar to what happened to gold from 06 through 2013. And you're seeing that happen at a much more rapid pace as not only hedge funds, but also life insurance companies, yeah. corporate treasurers, sovereign wealth funds Hold on a second. Uh, get involved. And so, Wait. you know, when you, when you put that all together, we think each of our themes has a reasonable probability of outperforming equities, but doing it with some correlation benefits. And so, you know, we're, we're super excited for, for Q2. Troy, let's dig into this Bitcoin position. How big is a sizable Bitcoin position that you took in December? Have you adjusted it? Are you building? Are you going to reduce it? Is it active or is it a long-term holding? Yeah, so for us, we, we it was rare. Most themes that we pursue, we, we leg into, and as we get more data relative to other opportunities, then we size it up over time. In this case, it was fairly clear to us that if we were, there was going to be a big move, it would be somewhere in the near term. And so we needed to front load that. So we started nibbling in, in mid-November. We bumped it up to 5.5% at cost in December. And that's our full at cost size. So from here, we're not adding any capital. Uh, we will manage the position over time, but we, we think we're in the sweet spot of all three of those factors in terms of money supply growth, in terms of um, you know, the adoption cycle. And, and we're not even a year through the first halving. You know, the bull markets tend to last 18 months, plus or minus, during the halving cycle. So for the next several months, we're going to continue to let it appreciate. It's grown to about a 13% position size through appreciation. Fortunately, the rest of our portfolio wow. has done well to offset that. But we, we look back at this. We think at the end of this year, people could potentially look back and say, um, if you had a meaningful Bitcoin position, you had a good to great year. And if you didn't, it could be much tougher to perform given all the phenomena we were discussing in terms of choppy monetary policy, rates, valuations, which Troy, is very similar. I've got to jump in because we're going to run out of time. Down. You can get that point okay, in sorry. in a second. 13% yep. of the portfolio. Just how much volatility is in your portfolio right now? Yeah, so, so look, that, that's one of the prices that you'll have to pay to have better performance in a year like this. So we typically target a 48% standard deviation 
Um, we think this year it'll be somewhere between eight to 12 because of how much the Bitcoin position's grown. But it's a, a unique opportunity where you're actually getting paid for that risk, where in many other strategies, it's more difficult uh, to get paid for taking market market volatility risk. You wanted to get that final point in, Troy? Oh, yeah. No, the final point was, so it's very, when, when we, I think back over my career and in, in the history of us managing our, our funds, oh, it's very similar to 07, or it could be, where 07 was a year that if you had the subprime short on, you had a good to great year. And if you, you didn't, it was much harder to make money as we were transitioning from, you know, a housing bubble into what ultimately turned into a bear market. Um, and so that's how the years played out so far. We're not saying that definitively at the end of 2021 that that's going to be how it plays out. But we think there's a reasonable chance that most active managers look back and say, hey, if I had a decent Bitcoin position, I had a solid year. And if I didn't, it was much more challenging. Troy, unbelievable. You've got to come back soon so we can talk more about this. Troy Gajewski there yes. the Sky Bridge. <laughs> A.B. Bernstein, co-head of investment strategist. Beata, great to have you with us on the program. I want to start right here. These stories are so obvious. We've been talking about them for three months, but for some reason it takes a while to see them play through markets cleanly. Why do you think that is? The stories on the vaccines and reopening, John? On Europe versus the United States specifically. The discussion that Lisa and I were just having, Europe, the news incrementally bad, the news out of the United States incrementally good, and yet euro dollar held in there through much of the last couple of weeks until the last couple of days. Financials in Europe have performed nicely. Travel and leisure stocks have performed nicely. Despite what we've seen, stories we're all aware of, yet we keep asking, it's well-known, is it well-priced? Yeah, I hear you on that, but I think we have to be conscious of the fact that the vaccine alone and the COVID story alone does not tell the whole story. You know, what we think about at Bernstein as global investors is what are the companies that are headquartered in this region and how are those companies affected by their slow rollout of the vaccine? And while the domestic consumer and the domestic implications are negative, many of these companies are actually exporters. Many of them are their cyclicals. And when you see the U.S. in what we would call a great reopening, their opportunity for export is actually high. And so I think you have to look at the whole big picture in terms of the earnings story. And then there's the valuation, right? As fundamental investors, when we think about the stock opportunity abroad compared to the stock opportunity in the U.S., the spreads have been enormous between the valuation of the U.S. and other countries, obviously U.S. growth versus U.S. value. There's a real opportunity building for selection and whether that selection is an asset allocation, in sector selection or security selection, I think it's bigger than the headlines, Jonathan. And picking up on something you've just said, I think was in the data this morning, Beata. Lisa, we saw that in the EFO data, business confidence in Germany, despite what we've seen, has been picking up. The outlook's brighter. Why is the outlook brighter? Because what's happening elsewhere is looking better. It's not just about what you see play out in Europe. It's the international story. That's right. It's that's definitely right. true, Beata. Carry on. I was just going to say, that's why we're remaining committed to being a global investor. I think it totally depends on your perspective. I heard the conversation on Bitcoin an hour ago and all your follow-up. You know, at Bernstein, we're investing for our clients for decades, not days. And we think about all the trade-offs and the decisions we make. We think it's a mistake to be a U.S.-only investor, right? And the geography, you're going to have trade-offs within the individual countries and their growth potential. And there's no doubt about it, Europe is really behind the U.S. in terms of COVID today. Uh, but you have to think more long-term. To your point, global businesses are headquartered there. The great reopening in the U.S. 
is going to drive outcomes there materially. All right. So what's the biggest bet right now that you see as being perhaps undervalued in a world that seems, for the most part, completely overvalued? Well, I'm going to argue that active investing may be the biggest bet that we're making. The idea that you can't just own the index. We know, look at the S&P last year, S&P incredibly concentrated the top seven stocks, representing really the highest concentration we've seen in the index ever. We know what those companies are. They're all in tech. They're the work from home beneficiaries. And with this great reopening, work from work is going to start to matter more. And that means cyclicals matter. That means industrials matter. That means small cap matters and utilities and consumer staples and value. These sectors so underperformed last year. And our theme with our clients was really balance. Let's not get whipsawed trying to uh, pivot from growth to value, value to growth. Let's maintain exposure over time, but let's be active. Let's make sure that security selection and focus on fundamentals is our guiding light. And that remains the case today. Yeah, well, perhaps this will be the year of active management. People have been saying this for a long time, but people are saying this time really is different based on the index construction. Because we're talking active management and portfolios, let's go back to where we started this hour. John was talking about that interview that we had with Troy Gajewski of Skybridge, where he said that the key aspect of a portfolio, which will be the big winner or not for 2021, is Bitcoin. Are you investing in Bitcoin? We are not investing in Bitcoin on behalf of our clients. When we think about outcomes for our clients, we think about number one, what is the fundamental case for the asset class? What's the return and risk and diversification story? And importantly, can we research that story with an edge? We think we've got a long way to go in the crypto space in terms of determining the edge and ultimately what the valuation should be. The influence of the individual investor is not going away. But when you look at the influence of the individual investor on Bitcoin today, it's huge. And it's pretty hard to predict that behavior. We feel much more confident investing in asset classes where we can base a fundamental story. So for our clients that are concerned about inflation because they're spending a lot from their portfolio, don't have wages that would be going up if we do hit an inflationary period, we think about a balanced position of inflation-linked bonds, and diversified real assets. Those are asset classes that we have decades of experience in driving the fundamental story. Bitcoin, we're simply not there yet. Beatica, great to catch up of A.B. Bernstein. Robert Tipp joins us now, PGM Chief Investment Strategist and Head of Global Bonds. Robert, let's start there. What on earth is going on? In the belly of the curve, Lisa, I think it's got to be a discussion that we need to have a whole lot more. Yeah, because honestly, people had been expecting somewhat of a decline in demand. So it's surprising that even given that, John, even that we saw that bid, uh, that really weak uh, bid to offer, or as uh, Tom might say, bid to Negroni spread. Bid to Negroni. Yeah, Tom called it. The bond market was a bit drunk yesterday, yeah. too. Robert Tipp's back with us now, PGM <laughs> Chief Investment Strategist. Robert, well, I know we had a technical issue just then for a couple of seconds, so I'm not sure if you heard what we were discussing. But on the seven-year yes, issue, seven year. the belly of the yeah. curve, what's happening there? What's the debate that's spilling over to supply, the uncertainty, the delicate dance that's taking place at the moment? Yeah, I, I think it's just the uncertainty about the course of the Fed and the bulk of the issuance. I mean, the, the frequency with which the belly of the curve is getting hit, your twos, fives, sevens, your tens, your threes, 
you know, every month Treasury pounding those parts of the yield curve in massive size. Uh, you know, different parts of the curve are just taking turns, uh, getting walloped uh, because of the macro backdrop. You know, investors are afraid to to step up and uh, you know evaluate what's going on in the world and and you know li- you know feel like they're lying down on the tracks ahead of the uh, uh, the inflation train that that everyone is expecting. I think that's that's the problem, and that seven year point is kind of an inflection point, uh, you know, on the curve, um, you know, for maximum yield volatility given the bulk of issuance. Is it just an inflation story? Is it a Fed fund story too, Robert, for further down the road? You know, I think that the Fed in some ways is getting buy-in and you have to dive into the yield curve. But when you look at the break-evens at the five-year point of the curve coming up 270 basis points, what that tells you is people are pricing in success for the Fed in terms of achieving the inflation target, right? The, the market, uh, has increased yields uh, a decent amount, and the market has its choice. Is it can increase the inflation expectation component of treasuries or the real yield? And the real yield is incredibly low. And that reflects, in some respects, uh, a, an expectation that the Fed will remain hold, keep the Fed funds rate incredibly low. And all of this expectation for Fed rate hikes and all that, what it really is, is an inflation premium in the front end of the curve. So. Uh, I think, though, when you look, the, the critical question is, is the market usually right on that front? And, and the answer is it usually is not. And that creates okay, the so the market's usually OK, the market is usually not right on that. The opportunity being buy bonds. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, so what, what's happened uh, the last few times that we've seen this surge in break evens like we're seeing right now, big fear of inflation in an economic recovery. We saw it in 2009 you are at a peak in nominal yields. And I think that's really the challenge that investors are having is they're fleeing uh, to all of these micro themes, whether it's your Bitcoin or your GameStop uh, or looking at uh, deep cyclicals for the recovery when the real variable that's going to drive their portfolios is the macro return. And the macro return profile of the bond market has improved tremendously and we're probably you know, within months of, of the beginning of the next stage of, of this secular bull market in bonds. In the meantime, people are looking okay. at, you know, is it the real yield? Is it the break-evens? Uh, should be in deep cyclicals. In the meantime, break-evens are telling you you're probably near a cyclical peak in yields. Can you dig a little bit more into what this means in terms of what you guys are doing with your investments? Have you been buying steadily 10-year treasuries as they sold off and expecting yields to go much lower? Is this meaning that you should rotate into uh, a higher quality credit? How are you rearranging based on this thesis and based on the rise in yields that we've seen of late? Yeah. Well, I think that the the easier trade uh, has been uh, not on the rate side. Uh, of, of the of the bond market equation, but the credit side and the recovery from COVID. And, and the fact of the matter is that is likely to remain the predominant uh, driver and the easiest source of alpha at this part of the recovery. Usually looking a year, two years after this kind of a rise in rates with a strong economy, your credit product, even though spreads have come into tighter than average levels, generally continues to perform well. The trickier part is is the rate side. And the market uh, tends to go into this overdrive of extrapolating the rapid growth of the recovery stage 
into the indefinite future. And that's what we're looking at right now. And the reason uh, why it's difficult to make a call, whether it's over and um, in the, my last uh, uh, privilege of being in the uh, bonus round, you know, I suggested your next 20 base points and rates could be higher and then lower is because there is the stimulus hitting right now, uh, money dropping into people's checking accounts, yep. checks in the mail. And that, you know, sets us up for the potential for another uh, boom in the economic data over the next 30 to 60 days. Hey, Rob, I wish Tom Keane was with us because that was a reference to Real Yield and your appearance on Friday. And if he's watching, I'm so happy that you made that reference. Let's finish on this. Your point about recency bias and extrapolating gout the next couple of quarters and how that infects and shapes the long end of the bond curve, 10s and 30s. Do you think that's why front month crude prices punch above their weight too, just that phenomenon? Well, I think that's, uh, you know, your typical commodity market phenomena where your, your short-term supply constraint, it runs first through the front end of the market. Uh, and only if that bias is persistent, you know, will you see it go into the back months of the curve. And obviously we're having a, a short-term dislocation there. Um, I think, um, you know, on the treasury curve, I, I think the, uh, the one thing that is overpriced are those, those five-year tips, but that over the course of the next 12 to, to 24 months, you're likely to see a good return to, to risk premium. The biggest problem investors are going to have is sticking with the markets. Uh, and you're going to be surprised by the fact that in this environment of the Fed staying on hold, providing a lot of accommodation, the next 12 to 36 months, your macro markets are going to work for you, including the bond market, likely to, to outperform cash once we get through this last burst of economic activity. That last burst coming right up, maybe. Robert Tip, thank you, sir. PGM Chief Investment Strategist. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.